this week uh, that was interesting. I've read it three or four times. It has turned up in different places. Uh, and I, I thought it was interesting and worth sharing. Um, Christmas music stresses people out. Uh, there have not been extensive studies done. So, like, this is not something that is a result of peer-reviewed, but a, a number of small studies in the last decade or so have discovered that people begin to feel anxiety when they hear Christmas music. Uh, and in particular, I think, it's not just when they hear Christmas music, but when they hear it on loop 10,000 times constantly. In my house, this is a running joke. Uh, where my wife is firmly of the opinion that Christmas music should not ever begin in advance of a certain point. And on day after Thanksgiving, I start playing it everywhere, not because I particularly like Christmas music, but because I like messing with my wife. Um, there are a lot of reasons that people experience this, and I think the number one big, with an exclamation point, reason um, is that it reminds us that we're just not ready, right? I mean, other than, like, that Mariah Carey one, which is horrible. And I, I actually was back and forth on whether or not to use a meme with uh, the scene from The Shining where the mom is in the bathroom and the door's been split open and it's just Mariah Carey with her microphone. Uh because it's just there, right? Like, it's there. We're not ready. We have stuff to buy, gifts to buy. Um, we've got cards to send. We've got to get the house decorated. We've got to be in a good mood. Or we've got people coming over, and the house has to be. I knew my wife was going to say that. And I'll tell you what. Did you know that this is, in fact, the first Sunday of Advent? And we do not typically do Advent candles here. I realized this week as I was praying that I want to do Advent candles. But I came in, I said, well, I'm going to get to work early, I'm going to find the wreath. Because we have one, I've seen it. You know what I couldn't find? The wreath, or the candles, or anything associated with it. I could not find anything, and I am ill-prepared. And I wanted to share this, um, I'm going to... Uh, originally was going to use these in my slides as I talk about this, but I think like when we really begin to look at what Advent is, um, what the celebration is, it's the four weeks preceding Christmas Day when we celebrate that Jesus, like, like God's Son, came in the flesh. It is coming, and as we approach that time, um, we've made it into something that you just can't really be ready for. Right? You can never decorate enough. You can never sing enough. You can never get enough gifts. You can never do enough I love you's. You can never, and like all of the garbage associated with that makes it so that we don't stop and think, God gave me the gift of knowing him. He gave me the gift of showing up as one of us. Um, from A.W. Tozer, I, this is a book, uh, He Dwelt Among Us. Uh, what is the logical mission for this coming one? Well, our own t hearts tell us why. Sin, darkness, deception, and moral disease all tell us why. The lies we have told, the temper tantrums we have thrown, 
the jealousies we have felt. All this tells us why he should have to come. The sin we cannot deny tells us why he should come. The mission was to judge the world, or that mission was to judge the world. If he had not told us that, the Holy Ghost would never have said not to judge the world. Um, Why did he say that? Because he knew the human conscious could say only one thing. Oh God, if you're sending someone from your throne, find a place for me to hide. For my heart tells me I ought to die. My heart tells me that I've piled up sin and I should be sentenced to die. And if this righteous one is coming, then I ought to die. Um, It's a little like when you were a kid and you got in trouble and your mom said, that's the one. And we all cringed, right? Dad is coming home. The God who sees me in the dark, who sees me in the darkest corners of my heart, who sees everything I've done, everything I am doing, and everything I will do, who is so holy that his holiness consumes sin and impurity like a fire, that God is coming. And it's terrifying. And I'm just not ready. I'm going to bookend that with a line... A little excerpt from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, God becomes human, really human. While we endeavor to grow out of our humanity, to leave our human nature behind us, God becomes human. And we must recognize that God wants us also to become human, really human. Whereas we distinguish between the godly and the godless, the good and the evil, the noble and the common, God loves real human beings without distinction. God takes the side of real human beings and the real world against all their accusers. But it is not enough to say God takes care of human beings. This sentence rests on something infinitely deeper and more impenetrable, namely, that in the conception and birth of Jesus Christ, God took on humanity in bodily fashion. God raised his love for human beings above every reproach of falsehood of, and doubt of uncertainty by himself entering into the life of human beings as a human being by bodily taking upon himself and bearing the nature, essence, guilt, and suffering of human beings out of love for human beings. God becomes a human being. He does not seek out the most perfect human being in the, in the order to unite with that person. Rather, he takes on human nature as it is. As we celebrate Advent, as we gather to worship and prepare our hearts and minds and souls and everything that we are for the celebration of the birth of Christ, there's a part of us that will always feel inadequate. Amen? There's a part of us that will always feel not ready, not good enough, who will look around their house and their lives and say, I'm not ready for my parents to show up in the same way as I'm not ready for God to see the mess I've made. Right? And the blessing that God gives us is that he came not to judge, but to save. He stepped into the flesh. He lived as one of us, and it is amazing.
our sermon today, our series coming up, um, is he dwelt amongst us. We are going to talk about the idea of the incarnation, um, and we are going to work through, did you see the sermon title? <laughs> We're going to work through the book of Hebrews a little bit this morning. I'm going to do my best not to get bogged down. I'm already well into it. Um, but today we're going to talk about, like, like the title is, All I Want for Christmas is You, right? And there's a part of us that can look at that and say it's the worst thing in the world if God shows up and judges me. But in reality, when God shows up, he shows up to give us himself. And all of that music and all of this stress and all of the festivities and the presents and all the other junk is just the trappings of the truth that Christ stepped into the world as one of us. So the incarnation is our theme. We're going to be talking about this real quick. I'm going to give you a definition. The incarnation is the historic Christian doctrine that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal second person of the Trinity, that he has in time taken upon himself a complete human nature by being born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning he was one of us. And that is a big deal because um, in the past, did you guys get outlines, by the way? If you need an outline, raise your hand and Abby will bring it to you, I think. Is she here? Titus will bring it to you. Oh, is she like running in? All right. Um, As we dive into the text today, understand that in the beginning, actually Hebrews, this is our main idea. I decided to use a scripture verse for our main idea. This is Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets as many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Um, What does all that mean, Eric? It's a really complicated main point. Here it is. In the past, there was an imperfect way that God spoke to us. He spoke to us through mediators, right? You'd have these prophets that show up, right? And the prophets would say, all right, here's what God said. And generally, those prophets were like killed horribly shortly thereafter because nobody wanted to hear what they had to say. The problem with prophets is that they have a habit of telling you the truth. Nobody wants to hear the truth, right? Nobody wants to hear, oh, you guys are screwing up and you're in for it now, right? That is the annoying little brother who, uh, you know, is always there. I'm going to tell mom. Um, the prophets were, were horribly killed. The other thing that we see with God before the prophets began speaking on his behalf as his primary like communications method, we had um, like fire on Mount Sinai, right? And if you went and touched the mountain, what would happen? You'd die. The glory of God was manifest on the Ark of the Covenant. You know what would happen if you touched the Ark of the Covenant? You'd die. If you took the lid off of it, you would die. If you um, wandered into the Holy of Holies inappropriately, you would die because God's holiness is so grand and wonderful that it consumes sin. And so in the past, like God had this distance between us and him. This is the problem of the scriptures, right? Our sin creates distance. Um, There's a great line in the, uh, I forget which catechism it is. Uh, What is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Meaning, why was man created? Created to be in a relationship with God. Sit up. We were created to know him and to enjoy him. Why did, you know, like, like one of the analogies I always use, why, why did I get married? I got married because I love my wife and I want to spend time with her for the rest of my life, right? Why did God create man? God created man so he could, so we could enjoy him, so we could glorify him, so he could love us and we could love him. That is our purpose. But sin destroys that. And it destroys it in such a way that whereas we see in the Eden account where God walks in the garden and talks to man face to face, sin happens and all of a sudden God speaks and the earth shakes. Right? He passes by Moses. Moses is like, let me see your glory. And he's like, all right, let me put you in this mountain cleft and I'll let you see me from behind. Right? And it nearly kills him. Um, Isaiah sees God face to face. And what happens to Isaiah? says, oh, I'm undone. I've seen God. I'm a man of unclean lips, which I really wanted to talk about in this sermon, but we're not going to. Like, the problem with creation is exactly what um, Tozer said. I'm in trouble because of my sin. Um, Because of sin, this is our our first big key point, um, there's distance between God and man. This is contrary to the created order and the purpose of creation. Like, it's just not the way it's supposed to be. Um, when we look at that, it takes a step further into our personal responsibility. I found a uh, quote from a rabbi I wanted to share. This would be a pre-Jesus quote, so this is kind of how the Jewish people looked at the world, but like in the time of Christ. Um, reflect upon three things, and you will not fall into the clutches of sin or transgression. Know from whence you came, whether you are going, and before whom you are going to have to give a full account of yourself. And that seems pretty easy, right? All I got to know is where I came from, where I'm going, and that I got to stand before God and give an account. He goes on to explain, from whence do you come? From a putrid drop. That's the part to laugh at, Daniel. Uh, Where are you going? To a place of dust, worms, and maggots. Meaning, I was born from that whole gross process. I will die and go into the ground. Both are unclean in the eyes of the Lord, right? Like according to the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. So I come from uncleanliness. I go to uncleanliness. And before whom you are going to give a full account of yourself, before the king of kings of kings and the holy one, blessed be he. That's scary, right? When you really start thinking about how good we're doing, oh my gosh, that's scary, I actually used my Tozer quote early, so I'm going to jump right over that, probably. Uh Aha. There's a great, actually, so before I jump into this, there is, so like the idea here is that we in the presence of God are doomed. We in the presence of God in our present form as we are, are ill-prepared, period. And so for us to climb the mountain to be close to the holy God is a death sentence. And beyond that, it is impossible. Um, It's not something, oh, I just have to try real hard. I just have to be extra good. I just have to remember that I'm dirty and sinful and I'll go into the ground and die one day and turn into dust and be eaten by worms. And then I got to answer to God for all my sins. It's not just enough because I can know all that and still do it. Um, Y'all ever know in the middle of a fight with your spouse or your parents, 
or whatever, depending on how old you are, that you're about to say the wrong thing. Or you're saying the wrong thing and you think, I should shut up right now. And in your head, you're thinking, this is a terrible idea. Why am I doing this? But what's your mouth doing? It doesn't matter because by nature we are sinful. By nature we rebel. By nature we hurt others and we re- like just do horrible stuff. It's awful. Um, and so this sinful element is the first part of our problem. The second part is, like, so that's point two. Our point three, since my slides aren't in very good order, um, and that is that everything we see in the Old Testament related to man and God is a shadow of what's coming. We're going to get into Hebrews real quick here, okay? So buckle up. The Hebrews part's fun. Um, but this is from a Rabbi Neusner. He, he wrote a book with a Christian fellow about their understanding, the ancient Jewish and the ancient Christian understanding of incarnation. Incarnation, remember, is Jesus in the flesh, right? God's presence. Um, and amongst the rabbis, there was this idea. The shift from prayer to Torah study accounts for a striking allegation that God is present amongst those who engage in Torah study. God is encountered as person in the Torah, by the way, which would be in the word. God is encountered as a person in the word as much as in prayer. And this point is repeated time and again. Um, So another rabbi said, and this is Neusner quoting him, Three who ate at a single table and did not talk about the teachings of the Torah while at the table are as though they ate from dead sacrifices. As it is said, for all tables are full of vomit and filthiness if they are without God. But three who ate at a t- single table and did, not, or, and did talk about the teachings of the Torah while at the table are as if they ate at the table of the omnipresent, blessed is he, As it is said, and he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. What does that have to do with anything? So the ancient Jews had this perspective that just to talk about the word was to be in God's presence, right? Just to talk about and engage in the word is to be in God's presence. But here's the problem with it. Um, If you have Disney Plus, does anybody have the Disney Plus channel? There is a three-part documentary that just got put on... uh, Disney Plus, called uh, Get Back, I think. Is that what it's called? It is a three-part Beatles documentary. And if you watch this, because I read a bunch of stuff about it, and all of these people who were talking about it said, it's like I know the Beatles now. It's like I know them personally because you saw behind the screen. Do any of those people who have never actually met those guys know the Beatles? No, they know their music. They know the documentary. They've seen some videos of them. There is a distinct difference between reading and everything else and knowing someone, right? I've read just about everything there is to read on Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know the guy. He died well before I was born. Um, Though I would really hope that Craig could tell me more about him one day. I think they hung out a couple times. Um, Nothing? That was... All right. He's not here. It's not... I'm just hoping he's watching. Um, So they have this little version of what it is to be in God's presence through the word. This weird subset of if we talk about it enough, God is with us. And there's an element of truth to that. 
right? Like it is an undeniable truth that like when you talk about the scriptures, there is the spirit stirring in your presence. Um, in Hebrews, like so Hebrews is this book that is written to Jewish believers. And the whole point of the book is, guys, go out and tell people about Jesus, right? Jesus is superior to the old way. Step away from that old way in favor of Christ and go spread the gospel, right? And so the book, we start off with that first part, the first three verses there. In the old days, he spoke through the prophets. He also spoke through the Torah and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? This is how God spoke to us back then, how we knew God. In these days, we know God because God showed up at our house. It is the distinct difference between watching a Beatles documentary and having them show up at your house. Some of them as zombies, I guess, but it is not the same. Um, Part of what Hebrews talks about in relation to this, this is pointing forward. Now, the first covenant, the covenant is the contract between God and man, had regulations for worship. Also, an earthly sanctuary, the temple or the tabernacle, uh, the tent in the wilderness, right? Um, A tabernacle was set up in its first room where a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. And the ark contained a gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, uh, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And the ark were where the cherubim of of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Uh, But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. So Paul, probably Paul, maybe somebody else, possibly Luke, there are a handful of other guys that might have written this book. Um, But probably Paul, if you go with tradition, is saying, listen, once upon a time, when people would worship God, there was this big elaborate setup, right? And all of this stuff is pointing forward to something else. It was never a thing unto itself. When we take communion, if communion is bread and juice or wine, we don't do wine here because we're a holiness movement, but like if it's just the elements, if it's just the bread and just the wine, like it is just those things, then it's pointless. Why? Because those things point to Christ crucified for us, right? Circumcision. The Jews were all about circumcision. But in the end, circumcision only mattered as a representation of the Jewish people being separated from the world and their sinful selves being separated from them. And it was pointing forward to Christ coming and changing our hearts. Is everybody still awake? I see eyes closing. Um, And so he's like, hey, all of this stuff is there and it all represents something else. It all has a purpose. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, or the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And so Paul makes this whole point, look, there's this whole elaborate setup, and the only time you could go into the most holy place, the place where the glory of God was manifest on the Ark of the Covenant, was when you went in with blood. Why blood? Because sin is paid for by death. The punishment of sin is death, right? And so something had to die when you sinned. And so the priest would come in there with this blood and he'd pour it out on the mercy seat and it would be a representation of 
or they believed it was the death of this lamb. The lamb would take the sin on, right? Paul is saying, listen, all of that's pointing forward. It's all a shadow. None of it is real. It is a symbol of something that would come, something better, something greater, something more awesome. Um, I'm going to jump up to 10. I had to jump around a little bit to pull this off. Uh, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have, to, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all would no, and would no longer have felt guilty of their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what he's saying here, and it's a little like my Tozer line and my rabbi line. Um, the only reason they did the sacrifices over and over again was as a reminder, I need forgiveness. I need atonement. I need to be made new. I need to be cleansed. Um, which kind of brings us to our, our like next point here. Like To summarize, the big thing, the big key idea in this is the temple, the law, the sacrificial system, and everything else in the Old Covenant is a shadow of the things that were to come later. I met my wife on the Internet back in the days when the Internet was cans on strings, right? And for a long time, our communications were typing back and forth, Right? And I could say, I know her because I know her from the Internet. When I met her in real life, there was a whole lot more stuff that was there that I had no idea about because the typing on the Internet isn't, I mean, it's real, but it's not real. Does that make sense? Handwritten letters are not the same as being in the presence of someone you love, right? They're secondary. They're a shadow. They're not as good. Um, and everything in the Old Covenant was not as good. In the same way, everything, like, like everything that was coming was pointing forward to this sacrifice, to this making new. Uh, we're going to go back and, and kind of work through our last two verses in Hebrews here. Um, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Blood of bull, goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience for acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? What does all that mean? It means we used to do these things to point forward. We used to do these things to deal with sin, but they only were pointing forward to Jesus coming. The incarnation and what we celebrate at Christmas is we don't have to be afraid of not being good enough. We don't have to be afraid that he's going to show up and discover that our house is a mess. We don't have to be afraid that God is going to come and pour out his wrath on our sins. The incarnation is God stepping into human flesh and becoming one of us so that he could die on our behalf. 
is the most wonderful gift we could possibly get. It is so much better to know Christ in person and face-to-face than just by reading the Torah, right? By reading the Word. That's the big tricky part with John, where John says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And all of that stuff is big Jewish ideas all the way up until you get to verse 14, and he says, and the Word was made flesh. Because God himself, the Torah, the the scriptures, everything, the creative word, everything, God stepped into humanity and became one of us. And he faced our temptations and he, he overcame and he died for our sins. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, ah, sacrifices and offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all. Jesus is God made flesh. And everything in the old pointed, or and, and he is everything that the old pointed to. Um, this might seem a little convoluted. I want to see if I can clear it up, okay? I'm realizing like, oh, man, a whole lot of this is in my head, and I didn't explain it. Um, When we celebrate Christmas, when we deal with the stress of it, when we deal with everything else, it's all trappings, right? When we talk about God and we talk about how, like, like God should judge these people or this or that or the other, you know, we or we feel fear for God in or shame for our sins before God, like all of these things – they're what Christ came for. They're why Christ died. It's why we celebrate Christmas. Is because God was incarnate. He became flesh to die for our sins. He became flesh um, so that we can experience him personally. Not just the Torah discussed in meals. Not just ceremonies. Not just lighting candles. Right? I mean, like, I, I don't like lighting candles and ceremonies We do it during Christmas as a reminder that we're getting closer and closer to the light of the world coming in. But that's just a candle. The real light of the world showed up. So God's presence, like as a man, is for the purpose of restoring our chief end, bringing us back to where we once belonged, if the Beatles were telling us. Um Christ is our high priest and mediator standing between us and God. This is something that is in Hebrews. I just wanted to touch on really quick. So like Christ comes, he's the sacrifice, but he's also the high priest. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. What does that mean? It means that between me and God, there is a spokesman, right? He is there to talk to God on my behalf and talk to me on God's behalf. I can encounter and, and walk with God. Now you might say, well, but I haven't seen Jesus all that often in my house, right? In truth, Jesus' is coming is a step closer. So God is up here, then he is here, and now we are filled with his spirit. And so we know God personally because he is in us and he is changing us. And in that, we can sometimes encounter God and other people because they look like Jesus. And it's awesome. 
Um, but Jesus is that mediator. And when I go to God and I say, God, I'm struggling with this sin. We talked about this in Sunday school, right? I have certain sins that I struggle with. I got this that's on my heart. I got this. I don't know what to do with it. And you realize like, oh my gosh, Jesus did all of this. Jesus was a teenage boy once. Right? I mean, if he was really a man, if he took on the nature of man, he had to deal with that, right? And all the miserable stuff that comes with being a teenage boy, right? He struggled with that. Jesus got sick and he had a cold. Sometimes he probably struggled to stay awake during long, boring, and confusing sermons, right? It's amazing. And so we say, oh my gosh, God is coming, I'm in trouble. Or that, you know, to go with the bumper sticker, Jesus is coming, look busy. Um, we have a mediator. We have one that knows us in our temptations who can come to us and say, I've been through this. This is what you do. I will stand with you in this. I died for this. Let it go. In Christ, in Christ, mankind can stand before God's presence even more so, like, as we're filled with the Spirit. I'm going to skip over my Titus passage here. Sorry, guys. Um, what do we do for application? Like, what do we do with all of this? Because it is kind of a lot. The incarnation, the idea that God was a man, fully man, like, he dealt with sin. He dealt not with sin, with temptation. He dealt with my sin by dying for it. He, he was in our presence. He had to use the bathroom sometimes. He had to, like, he was hungry sometimes. He was tired. He was probably maybe cranky, I imagine. I can't imagine people not getting cranky. Like, he had all of these things. What do we even do with that, that he died for us so we could be made right with God? Like, like the whole mess. First of all, like, we have to remember when the Christmas music starts, when the Christmas music starts, um, that it's really a reminder that God was made flesh. It might be annoying to hear rocking around the Christmas tree 10 million times a year. But you can stop and say, this is a celebration of God made man. This is a celebration of God at my table with me, in my heart, in hard situations. This is a celebration of God coming to bear my sin. He made a way for me to be saved. When I, when I hear... All I want for Christmas is you. I can know that Christ suffered too. Wow, I did put everyone to sleep. (laughs) Secondly, we're blessed to encounter and know God. Like this is a true statement. The opportunity to know God personally is amazing. We can walk into his presence and ask for things. We can stand and say, I am an adopted son of the almighty God. And we have to live as though this is true because it's easy to not live as though it's true, right? I mean, it's easy to live as though I'm still dead in my sin. It's, still, it's easy to live as though I'm defeated in everything. It's, it's easy to live as though I'm enslaved to my flesh, which I sort of am, but I, in Christ and in his spirit, I have strength that I wouldn't otherwise have. It's easy to live as though Black Friday is important, right? Believe me, I spent way too much money on the Internet this week. Like, I can't. You know, it, 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 it's easy to live as though the mess in our house is really a reflection of who we are. Or the fact that we didn't buy all the right gifts and we had to knock over a toddler to get one of them. Um, like, all of that stuff is garbage next to the truth that Christ died for us. Live as though this stuff is true, guys. Live as though at every meal Christ is sitting with you. Right? Whether you talk about the Torah or not. Live as though your relationships that are hurt 
are broken or you can't figure out how to talk to these people or these sins you can't figure out how to overcome or whatever. Like, Christ carried this. Live as though it's true. And finally, the incarnation knows that we can know God beyond and more intimately. Like, we can know God, like, intimately. It's a really awful sentence there. I don't know who wrote this mess. Um, I remember... All right, real quick. There are a handful of married people in the room, right? When you first met your spouse, did you have many-hour conversations that would escape you, and you'd think, oh, my gosh, how did it become morning? We were just talking, you know, at lunchtime, right? Isn't that the best? Or, like, the people around you would be sick of hearing you talk about them. I remember there was a time when I was dating Jess. We were long-distance dating, and so, like, we're talking on the Internet every night. It did not sound as cool then as it does now, but people were sick of hearing about her, right? Sick of it. I'm guessing the Yearwoods who are here were sick of hearing Jess go on about how wonderful her (laughs) eventual husband was and gushing over how handsome and dashing he was and smart and funny and everything else, like, at least funny, um, I remember wanting to know her more all the time with my kids. When my daughter is weepy because girls are weird, I want to know why she's upset, right? Because I want to know her. There are people who want to know why the Beatles broke up and pretend it wasn't Yoko. There are people who want to know what their neighbors are like. They want to know what, I mean, like, like if God is incarnate in Christ, if we can actually know him, then we have to put our effort into knowing him and telling people about him. The same way we told people about our sweet honey back in college, right? People would say, just stop talking about her. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. Jesus died for me. Jesus was born in Christmas. Like that, well, we celebrate Jesus' birth at Christmas. Let me get into that. Like, people should get tired of us talking about it because we're so in love with our Savior. It's not some esoteric conversation. It's a real, real relationship. Remember when Jess and I kissed at our wedding, we practiced it like 10, 20 times, dipping. I dipped her. And when we went to do it, I did not drop her. (laughs) However, she was wearing a veil. And that veil slipped, and she had not practiced for the veil. And she reached up and grabbed the veil instead of putting her arm around me, and I almost dropped her. It was not the same thing. Mostly dead is not all dead. Um, And then the photographer said, do it again so I can get a better picture. And there's a picture floating around in my... Uh, Facebook and phones and stuff like that of the second kiss where she's laughing and I love that picture and I show it off off and I think it might be hanging or it's not hanging in my office that one Um, but I do that because I love her and because I know her and because I know these moments I've had with her this is what Christ should look like in us right not oh man it's almost Christmas oh man if I hear oh come oh come Emmanuel one more time I'm going to shoot myself Oh, man, we should be saying, all I want for Christmas is you, Christ. All I want for Christmas is you. It wouldn't be not wanting a lot either. It is everything. I'm going to close in prayer. I know, hopefully, it wasn't too much of a mess. Um, 
There's so much to talk about. It's such an amazing story, such an amazing blessing that God became flesh. And his volumes have been written on it. Heavenly Father, I praise you this first Sunday of Advent as we prepare for the coming of Christ. Um, I praise you if anybody heard from you today, um, despite me. I, I praise you that, that you know, the time of Christmas music is coming and we'll be reminded time and time again, Lord, that you came for us. And let it be a reminder that isn't a terrified, oh my gosh, I'm not ready, but a blessed, Jesus died for me. I can know Jesus personally. I'm not far away. He lives in me. I praise you for just being the God incarnate, this God who loves us more than anything. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good Sunday. Merry Christmas. I don't want a lot for Christmas.